Hello again. This is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care, presenting the July 2008 issue of the journal. This month we published five original research papers, three editorials, the 2007 Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture, a case study, a teaching case, several letters to the editor, and several book reviews. Also included is a revised clinical practice guideline on infant and toddler pulmonary function tests. Sarah, tell us more about what the readers can expect in this month's issue. The first paper in this issue comes from Lori et al. in a study conducted at the University of Minnesota. The title of their paper is Comparison of a 10 breaths per minute versus a 2 breaths per minute strategy during cardiopulmonary resuscitation in a porcine model of cardiac arrest. They tested the hypothesis that during CPR, two breaths per minute would result in a higher cerebral perfusion pressure and brain tissue oxygen tension than 10 breaths per minute. They also evaluated whether an impotence threshold device would further enhance cerebral perfusion and brain tissue oxygen tension, especially with two breaths per minute. Pigs were anesthetized with propofol and subjected to six minutes of untreated ventricular fibrillation, followed by five minutes of CPR. Chest compressions were applied at 100 compressions per minute with a compression depth of 25% of the anterior-posterior chest diameter. Ventilation was either 10 breaths per minute or 2 breaths per minute, with 100% oxygen and a tidal volume of 12 milliliters per kilogram of body weight. The impotence threshold device was then used during 5 additional minutes of CPR. During CPR, the mean coronary and cerebral perfusion pressures with 10 breaths per minute versus 2 breaths per minute were not significantly different. Carotid artery blood flow was significantly greater in the 10 breaths per minute group versus the 2 breaths per minute group. Brain tissue oxygen tension was also significantly greater in the 10 breaths per minute group versus the 2 breaths per minute group. After 5 minutes of CPR, there were no significant differences in arterial blood gases between the groups. During CPR, with the impotence threshold device, the mean carotid blood flow and brain tissue oxygen tension were significantly greater in both the 10 breaths per minute group and the 2 breaths per minute group. The authors conclude that during the first 5 minutes of CPR, 2 breaths per minute resulted in significantly lower carotid blood flow and brain tissue oxygen tension than did the 10 breaths per minute group. Subsequent addition of an impotence threshold device enhanced carotid flow and brain tissue oxygen tension, especially in the 10 breaths per minute group. Stoller et al. from the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio, conducted a study to compare respiratory therapy departments deemed change-avid or non-change-avid to identify differentiating characteristics. Assessments regarding change readiness and avidity were based on structured in-person interviews of the technical directors and or medical directors of eight respiratory therapy departments. Using a priori criteria, four of the eight departments were deemed change-avid based on the presence of two or more of the following three criteria. One, 
uses a management information system, two, uses a comprehensive respiratory therapy protocol program, three, uses non-invasive ventilation in 20% of patients with exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Ratings of the departments were based on two scales, one from Integrated Organizational Development and the eight-stage change model of Cotter. The ratings of the four change-avid departments differed significantly from those of the four non-change-avid departments on both the Integrated Organizational Development Scale and the Cotter Scale. Eleven highly desired features of a change-avid respiratory therapy department were identified. A close working relationship between the medical director and the respiratory therapy staff, a strong and supportive hospital champion for change, using data to define problems and measure the effectiveness of solutions, using redundant types of communication, recognizing resistance and minimizing obstacles to change, being willing to tackle tough issues, maintaining a culture of ongoing education, consistently rewarding change-avid behavior, fostering ownership for change and involving stakeholders, attending to respiratory therapy leadership succession planning, and having and communicating a vision for the department. The authors conclude that change-avid respiratory therapy departments can be differentiated from non-change-avid departments with available assessment tools. Highly desired features of a change-avid department were identified but require further study, as does the relationship between change avidity and clinical outcomes. Anatomic Dead Space Cannot Be Predicted by Body Weight is a study by Brewer et al. from the University of Utah Health Sciences Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. The authors analyzed data from 58 patients to assess the accuracy of five anatomic dead space prediction methods. Anatomic dead space was measured during the first 10 minutes of monitoring and compared to the predictions. The coefficient of determination between the anatomic dead space estimate based on body weight and the measured anatomic dead space was poor and the mean error between the estimates and the measured anatomic dead space was 60 plus or minus 54 milliliters. The authors conclude that Radford's method of estimating anatomic dead space was sufficient when used as he intended, together with the other assumptions for the purpose of identifying a starting point in the ventilation algorithm. But the poor agreement between an individual patient's measured and predicted anatomic dead space contradicts the assumption that dead space can be predicted with actual or ideal weight alone. Next we have spiromic correlates of dyspnea improvement among emergency department patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation by Camargo et al. of the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. The objective of this study was to examine whether the change in slow vital capacity correlates to dyspnea improvement during emergency department treatment of COPD. This was a prospective cohort study and enrolled consecutive patients during a three-week period. 
Emergency department patients 55 years of age or older with COPD exacerbation were asked to perform bedside spirometry shortly after emergency department arrival and again at discharge. Slow vital capacity was measured first and then FEV1, peak expiratory flow, and forced vital capacity. Concurrent with spirometry, patients rated their dyspnea on a 10-centimeter visual analog scale. 36 patients were enrolled. The median emergency department stay was 271 minutes. 71% of the patients reported dyspnea improvement during their emergency department stay. Change in slow vital capacity was significantly higher among the patients whose dyspnea improved than among those whose did not. The authors conclude that an increase in slow vital capacity significantly correlated with dyspnea improvement among emergency department patients with moderate to severe COPD exacerbation. Change in slow vital capacity merits consideration when evaluating therapeutic response during a COPD exacerbation. The final original research presented in this issue is by Batensley et al. from the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. The objective of this study was to determine whether pressure support ventilation is more comfortable than volume-controlled ventilation in intubated patients. In a randomized prospective trial, patients underwent pressure support ventilation and volume-controlled ventilation for 30 minutes each, separated by a 30-minute washout with the baseline ventilation mode of pressure-regulated volume-control ventilation. The level of pressure support was set as the plateau pressure on volume control with a tidal volume of 8 milliliters per kilogram of body weight minus the end expiratory pressure. After each mode, the patient was asked to mark his or her comfort level on a visual analog scale. 11 of the 14 patients were more comfortable during pressure support ventilation. Pressure support ventilation was significantly more comfortable than volume control or pressure-regulated volume control. Comfort scores for volume control and pressure-regulated volume control were not significantly different. Respiratory rate, blood pressure, heart rate, minute ventilation, and blood oxygen saturation showed no difference between modes. The authors conclude that, on average, the patients felt more comfortable during pressure support ventilation than during volume control or pressure-regulated volume control, and thus, pressure support may be the preferred mode for awake, intubated patients. Each year, the American Association for Respiratory Care honors Philip Kittredge, a former editor of Respiratory Care, with the Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture. Karen Stewart from the Charleston Area Medical Center in Charleston, West Virginia, presented the 2007 Kittredge Lecture. We are pleased to publish a version of this lecture in Respiratory Care. It is titled, Managing Respiratory Care, Where is the Science? Managing a respiratory care department is challenging. Health care is one of the few businesses in which the payers dictate the fees for services. 
recent changes in focus and expectations in the overall healthcare industry have strongly affected the job of the respiratory care manager. There is now stronger emphasis on improving the management of human resources. Good human resources management requires understanding the workforce, minimizing staff turnover, and finding ways to do more work with fewer employees. Respiratory care managers must marshal strong evidence and compelling reasoning to compete for funding, make evidence-based or at least carefully researched purchasing decisions, implement protocols and optimize patient and clinical outcomes including work efficiency, implement patient safety initiatives such as care bundles to avoid preventable complications, and vigorously pursue initiatives that optimize the workflow and advance the professional status of respiratory therapists such as rapid response teams. Wang et al. from the Changgung University in Taiwan present a case report entitled Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Pulmonary Disease in an Immunocompetent Adolescent. They report a 16-year-old previously healthy boy who presented with a six-week history of fever, anorexia, weight loss, and respiratory distress. The chest radiograph showed bilateral upper lobe infiltrates and cavitations indistinguishable from mycobacterium tuberculosis infection. He was actually infected with mycobacterium kansaceae. Treating mycobacterium in an immunocompetent child requires multiple antimycobacterial drugs for at least 12 months after negative sputum culture. This month's teaching case is by Ramar and Daniels from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It describes the care of a patient with constrictive pericarditis presenting as unexplained dyspnea with recurrent pleural effusion. As you know, the role of ventilation during CPR has been de-emphasized in the current CPR standards. The paper by Lurie et al. is interesting because it addresses the important issue of ventilation rate during CPR. In this animal model, they show that a strategy using two breaths per minute resulted in a lower brain PO2 than ventilation at 10 breaths per minute. As with any animal study, these results must be confirmed in humans. As pointed out in the accompanying editorial by Berg and Kern, bystander hands-only CPR in other words, compressions without ventilation has been shown to be at least as effective as conventional CPR in terms of survival. In fact, the Heart Association recommends that on-trained bystanders provide hands-only CPR. Several papers in this issue should be of interest to respiratory care managers. The study by Stoller et al. shows that respiratory care departments that are avid for change can be distinguished from those that are not. These results will hopefully allow additional study to determine whether departments that are change avid are associated with better clinical outcomes. In her paper, Karen Stewart discusses ways that managers can take an evidence-based approach to departmental management. In recent years, volumetric capnography has become clinically available and allows bedside measurement of anatomic dead space by the Fowler method. In their study, 
Brewer et al. report that various methods to estimate anatomic dead space do not agree well with its direct measurement. Use of volumetric capnography to assess dead space may be of value in patients with acute lung injury, as discussed in an accompanying editorial by Rich Kelly. Hyperinflation is an important contributor to dyspnea in patients with COPD, and this is associated with a reduction in vital capacity. Camargo et al. measured slow vital capacity in patients with COPD exacerbation and report that an increase in this measure is associated with a reduction in dyspnea. It is commonly taught that pressure support ventilation is more comfortable than other modes, although this has not been well studied. In their study, Betensley et al. report that, on average, patients felt more comfortable during pressure support ventilation than during volume-controlled ventilation or pressure-regulated volume control. However, it is important to note that, although this was the case in the majority of patients, this finding did not occur in all patients. This suggests that the most comfortable mode may need to be individualized. Moreover, this was a short-term physiologic study, and the authors did not evaluate whether patient outcomes, such as ventilator days, were affected. You will also be interested in the case report on non-tuberculous pulmonary disease and the teaching case on constrictive pericarditis. Finally, there are several lively exchanges in letters to the editor and several book reviews. You will find that the July issue of Respiratory Care is filled with information of value to clinicians caring for patients with respiratory disease. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.